bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. Thank you for revealing to us in time your grace and your love. Thank you for giving us hearts that never grow too familiar with it, but rather embrace it and use it as proper motivation to go bear fruit to bring glory to you. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to make this evening a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the Gospel of Salvation and Sanctification, Part 88. Uh, here's what I got out of Tuesday's lesson uh, in a nutshell. And this idea of a process, going through the process of sanctification came up quite a bit uh, on Tuesday from the Spirit. In particular, again, trust in the process. So we're all being sanctified. We're all saved, presumably, and we're being sanctified. And we already know what God's perspective is on sanctification. It's going to happen. So trust in the process and stop frustrating it at every turn. So, in particular, trust in the supernatural God of the universe. For example, when it comes to God's sovereignty versus your free will, in many ways, it's actually better that we don't understand it fully because it demands faith. In many ways, it's good that we don't understand a lot of things about the supernatural realm uh, that God functions in. Because in that realm is where faith thrives. And if we knew everything, we wouldn't have to have faith, would we? And then we take in Scripture on the coattails of this principle. Hebrews 11.6 Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. So the irony of it all is that He says, I'm not going to tell you. That's going to demand faith. And then when I give you that faith, when you have it, it's going to please me. I'm going to bring glory to myself. Hopefully you see that wonderful thing. So it's actually part of God's plan, in other words, that you don't know everything. Because it demands faith, and faith is what pleases Him. Kind of like He had it all figured out, huh? And dwell on that. Only faith pleases Him. So it stands to reason that if someone doesn't require, or something doesn't require faith, or maybe much less so per se, then it's impossible to please him to whatever degree faith is missing. Hmm. And one other thing that stood out on this topic was this, a practical point from Tuesday. Don't worry about not being able to put into words all that he's done for you. Don't worry about it. Not being able to put into words all that He's done for you. That's not what's important. We also finished up our work on that seemingly paradoxical, paradoxical passage, namely Philippians 2, 12-13, that stated up here on the board. Philippians 2, 12b-13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We noticed, or we noted a work that we are tied to as individuals, for it is God who is at work in you, 
both to will and to work for his good pleasure. But we also noted simultaneously that God is in work, at work in us. So we have two works going on, and that's completely fine. And it takes a little faith to accept that. And then the Spirit added 1 Peter 2.2 as a friendly reminder from some previous lessons like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the Word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. So that you may grow in respect to salvation. And as I was listening to the message, I was thinking about how God is always working behind the scenes to His own glory. So even though we have a certain responsibility, we've seen that in Scripture, God is always working behind the scenes to His own glory. I just gave you a perfect example of that with faith. That faith is actually what's pleasing to Him. And how do we receive faith? By the grace of God. So God's always working behind the scenes through vessels of mercy to ensure that glory, uh, that He receives glory in the end. So again... I was thinking about how God is always working behind the scenes to His own glory in many ways despite our own fleshly objections and or ignorance. Despite our fleshly objections and or ignorance. And it made me think about the following verse. Go to Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28. So we spent a lot of time on Philippians 2, 12, and 13 as a reminder of some supernatural things that we have to receive by faith. But we also have to receive this scripture by faith in our own lives, Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things, not some things, not most things, all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And that's a nice, friendly reminder. All things He works together for good for those who love God. And of course, those who love God is a reference to believers. And for a week or so now, uh, the Spirit's had me going back to one particular passage that we visited twice already over the course of the past couple of lessons. Go to John 15.1. John 15.1. I think this first came up on Sunday, and then uh, on Tuesday we revisited it in some detail. But we're going to dig a little deeper because there's one verse there that actually, I wouldn't say bothered me, but caused me to stop and think, especially given the context of our lessons as of late. And I want to walk through it with you. We're going to do something special this evening that I very rarely do, and you'll see that in a moment. John 15, 1. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. So we have a parable, so to speak, of the vine and the branches going on here. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. So this verse 2 is the verse that got me thinking and digging and praying, and then digging some more, and thinking some more. Pretty much all week. Why? Because if you read it the way it's translated in the New American Standard, it could almost be construed as saying that there are branches in Christ that won't bear fruit. 
And there's some truth to that. But since Scripture, and I'll qualify that in a moment, so hold that thought, since Scripture must always fit with other Scripture in the Bible, which, as we've seen, says dogmatically that believers in Christ will produce fruit, it is my responsibility to God, myself, and also to all of you to get this ironed out. So, I want to share what I've concluded, just in case any of you have ever stopped and scratched your head on this particular verse. There's really no other verses in the chapter that caused me any sort of cause to stop and scratch my head and spend any extra time on it. But this particular verse caused me to stop. As I taught on Sunday, this chapter is so very beautiful that I don't want any of you to have a twinge even about anything in your souls by reading the second verse in the passage. It's not often I'll do this with you, but in this case I'm going to give you a, actually three different interpretations that I feel are even, there's some viability to all three. Um, and that's okay. What I've learned over the years, even studying, you know, some people have been at this for 50, 60 years behind pulpits, uh, you know, so-called great theologians, and you read their work and they'll say, it could mean this, it could mean that. And you have to be okay. As long as either one of those cases doesn't break theology proper, they both are somewhat acceptable. It might give you a certain emphasis in a certain area if you interpret it one way, but it might give you a certain emphasis in another area if you interpret it another way. But as long as theology proper, what's plainly stated in Scripture, is not broken by either case, so you kind of go with it. And so I'm kind of showing you something that I don't often do because when people get, you know, multiple options of interpretation, it tends to make them kind of antsy. It's like, just tell me. Tell me what to think. I don't even care if it's wrong. Just tell me one thing and I'll just accept it. But that's not always the case. I'm sorry. God knows. And maybe he did do it that way for multiple interpretations. I don't know. But I'm going to share with you three different interpretations that I think have viability. And that's just me being honest. Why? Because I don't want anybody to read it and scratch their head and go, what's going on here? So the key to unlocking the first interpretation, actually the first couple, uh, and it's simple, uh, it's one of those times where we have to go back to the original Greek to see precisely how this verse fits into verbal plenary scripture. So let me show you how that's done. First we consider the words for does not bear. Does not bear is from may pharon. It means not bearing, not plus bearing is in the present tense active voice, as I've taught you, means that's a lifestyle in view. For example, a tree in hibernation does not bear fruit as it's out of season. If that tree never bears fruit, then it's dead. So says other scripture about trees and fruits and that kind of a thing that Jesus spoke plainly about. But here we have this phrase, may fare on, does not bear. Again, it's in the present 
tense, active voice, which implies a lifestyle. For example, a tree in hibernation does not bear fruit. As it's out of season, if that tree never bears fruit, though, it is dead. Now, keep that thought in mind, because we're not done, that under this interpretation, Jesus is saying that there are some he calls out as branches that have a lifestyle of not bearing fruit, at least for a season. Again, let's read it. What does it say? Verse 2. Every branch in me, and the assumption with the first two interpretations that if you're a branch in him, then you must be a believer. There's a third that uh, contends with that, but we'll get to that. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. But we just noted that's a lifestyle. Uh, But lifestyles, you had a lifestyle that was different maybe yesterday than you do today, so to speak, in some respects. Now, the second thing we need to look at is God's response to this person. And listen closely and synthesize. It says, he takes away. It's from the Greek word, uh, uh, "airy." It means to raise, to take up, to lift. Is in the present tense, active voice, indicative mood. Indicative just means that it's a dogmatic statement of fact. It means God will do this thing. He will take away this branch that doesn't bear fruit. In context can mean one of three things. God lifts up a believer to bearing fruit. For example, the prodigal son. Or God lifts up a believer to heaven, let's say, as the sin unto death. In other words, just takes you out because you went too long uh, in a certain sin, let's say. Or God throws the unbeliever into hell, which means this particular situation is in reference to an apostate. In all possibilities, though, God actively makes something happen. God actively, dogmatic statement of fact, makes something happen. So regardless of the interpretation that you're comfortable with, What we do know, blanket statement, is that God makes something happen. He takes them away. (laughs) Now, it depends on the context that you subscribe to that the taking away um, makes any sense further on down the line for you. Under Under this first interpretation, God never allows a believer to live a lifestyle permanently without taking some action. And that, my friends, fits perfectly into the rest of our theology on the topic. What the Spirit's saying here is simple, that if a believer isn't bearing fruit, at least in the present tense, God will take some action to remedy the situation. So that believer, that might be a seasonal viewpoint, in other words, that believer will either be taken out completely, or God will lift them up out of the mire. You can think of the prodigal son. And welcome them home the way the father did with the prodigal son. Now the third interpretation proposes that those branches in me that Jesus is speaking of are actually apostates who are merely pretending, which has its viable arguments too. So let me show you how this third argument compares with uh, other scripture. Paul talks about branches being in, then out, then grafted back in again. 
Go to Romans 11.17. Romans 11.17. So if you stick sort of, you know, hardcore with the branches analogy, you have to go with what Paul, at least consider what Paul has to say in Romans 11. Romans 11.17. Well, what is, what a branch is capable of, in other words. Can they be in, then out again, then back in again? Well, what does Paul say? <clears throat> Romans 11, 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, Jews are in view here, and you being a wild one, a wild olive, Gentiles in view, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches, but if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off. For what? Their unbelief. So there you have branches being broken off. Branches that, as we just saw, might be in him, so to speak, in the vine, in the root. They were broken off, why? For their unbelief. And that implies an initial starting point of being in. You can't be broken off if you're not on in the first place. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who felt severity, but to you God's kindness if you continue in His kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again, implies previously being in. The word again, which is actually in the Greek, I looked at it, it's not added by English translators, it's actually in the Greek, it says in again. It implies previously being in, correct? Otherwise, again, wouldn't make any sense. So in terms of the, let's say, I hate to use the word, the phrase, but, you know, the doctrine of branches. It seems that branches in the Bible can be in, then out, then back in again. So you have to take that into account when we look at John 15, too, regarding certain branches being in him and then being cast off. So... Uh, for verse 24, just to finish the thought, for, it, for if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? So what we see here in support of the third possible interpretation of John 15:2 is that branches are described as being in, then out, then back in again. Hmm. Which says that, quote, branches, if we're to compare now, Scripture to Scripture, if you apply that ability of branches to be in and out and in again, then the branches in John 15, too, may be referring to those individual Jews, let's say, who weren't bearing any fruit, even though they might be pretending to be believers, and that's a reference to apostates. So he says, I'm going to get rid of you. Another viable interpretation. Nothing breaks on our core theology, but you see how that can go. 
In any of the three cases, our main theology remains pristine. I hope you appreciate my sharing that with you. It's not always comfortable to do that because I'm afraid that people might walk away more confused. (laughs) Hey, I wasn't confused until you brought up three interpretations. Now I'm confused. Sorry. Fruit bearing. True believers will produce fruit because God says so. And if they don't for a time, he'll rectify it because he will. He says he will. And if they never come back, they were never his child in the first place because they never are what Scripture calls, or they are what, they, what Scripture calls out as apostates. And that's all theology that we've been given for months now. Having researched all three interpretations, I can say that truly all have some theological merit. And so I don't vehemently object to any one of them. And since it's the gospel that I care about most, and no interpretation that I've mentioned compromises the main theology in view, the only one I would vehemently be offended by is if someone said the branch was a believer and they could lose their salvation. That one I would say, no way. But these other ones are not saying that. So no interpretation that I presented compromises the main theology in view on the board. And I'm okay with keeping my mind open on this particular verse. However, the rest of the chapter is pretty obvious and easy to understand. So let's read it uh, through verse 6. I've got one more thing I want to say, because it's related to verse 2. Look at verse 2 again. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. John 15, 2. Did I not give you enough time? Fifteen two. Every branch, excuse me, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Now that's a different statement altogether. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. In the, up here on the board, cast them into the fire brings up a... Uh, more definitive subject, Scripture depicts the burning by fire as ultimate judgment as that reserved for unbelievers. Matthew 7, 19, 13, 40 to 42, and there's a plethora of verses to support that. Go to Matthew 7, 19. Matthew 7, 19. So Scripture depicts the burning by fire as ultimate judgment as that reserved for unbelievers. Matthew 7:19 Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and what thrown into the fire. Okay, that's consistent. Go to Matthew 13:40. Matthew 13:40. It's a common theme in the Bible, uh, burning with fire, referring, I mean think of the lake of fire for crying out loud. Matthew 13:40 
So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, remember the, the parable of the wheat and the tares, the tares are the ones that look just like believers, but they're unbelievers. So what happens to the unbelievers? They get burned up with fire. That's the, that's the uh, imagery, the consistent imagery in the Bible. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place uh, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So you might argue as well that the, the they, back in our primary verse in John 15, are the angels who take away unbelievers and burn them up. Again, the reason I'm spending a little extra time on this is because this particular passage got me off on a bit of a sidebar in my own studies, and if I personally needed some clarification, then chances are some of you did too. Again, go to uh, John 15, 6. John 15, verse 6. <clears throat> if, John 15, 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. That's almost the same imagery we just saw with the wheat and the tares. So in light of the third interpretation I mentioned regarding John 15, 2, that those so-called branches that do not bear fruit are apostates, that was the third interpretation, verse 6 here would amplify that position that the taking away in verse 2 means to damnation for good. Okay, But again, not to confuse any of you, the important thing to remember here, and it's the base reason I spent all this extra time on this, is that true believers will produce fruit. God makes it so. This is consistent then with the verse that got us going in this direction in the first place. Go back to Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Those are reference to believers. To those who are called according to His purpose. Now this whole thought process brings up another principle we've been studying out incrementally the past few weeks. That is regarding experiential sanctification. Remember our big picture here. Uh, the grand scope of things is still under that salvation perspective and sanctification perspective. And we've been on experiential sanctification now for months. Uh, and it makes sense because that's what we're in the middle of right now, being experientially sanctified. So it makes a lot of sense that the Spirit's spending this much time on it. So again, this whole thought process brings up another principle that we've been learning regarding experiential sanctification. And I gave you a triplet of principles that are worth reiterating up here on the board. I'll go quickly because this is the third time you've seen them. But these are heavy-duty principles, folks. These are summary principles of much of what we've studied probably over the past... 25, 30 hours of study, I would say. These are summary, if not the whole course, but 
experiential sanctification, by grace, God changes us. That's something we have to accept. And I, I mean, I pray, this is my prayer for you guys, that you accept that, that, that there's no consternation, there's no doubt, that you actually say, as crazy as it sounds, as bizarre as it may sound to my unbeliever friends, I'm literally a new person. I look the same, but I'm literally, not kind of, not eventually I will be, once I make better, you know, once I make good on God's demands. And No, you are literally changed. Not just a little for the better, perfect. And what God's been saying from the pulpit is, identify with the perfect part of you, which is the new creature. The same one that you, that you go to heaven with, so to speak. We're to dice it up that way. So by grace, God changes us. By grace, He's made us new creatures in Christ. We have new natures that are perfect, therefore can only do His good will. The new us is willingly humble and supernaturally fellowships with God, making our fruit-bearing a collaborative joint labor. Now, to avoid assigning any creature credit in the production of divine good fruit in our lives, we simply refer back to Scripture, which says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. 1 Corinthians 15.10 God has qualified us to work with Him in Christ. We are not somehow passive robots whose free will is merely an academic construct that God invented to appease our flesh's desire for independence. At salvation, He literally changed us. It's because of that grace activity that we are able to join Him in accomplishing His will in time. We desire obedience. If you read the Bible plainly with the faith of a child, you'll see that it says, you do these things. James 1.22, don't be a hearer that deludes themselves. Be a doer. You. You be a doer. It's not let the Spirit be a doer in you only. He may have an energizing ministry, a teaching ministry in your life, but the calling is on your life. So for anyone who might be struggling with this, let me give you another perspective that might help. I think I wrote a blog on this, at least in part. Is God a puppeteer or? Question mark. Your theology will have to either suggest that you can do good things, for example, you're a new creature, or you will have to propose that God is an eternal puppeteer. So I say just consider heaven then. Are we going to be a bunch of puppets in heaven? Are we going, we, you know, we in our new creature, with our new resurrection bodies, but we, the resurrection body doesn't bring with it some new revelation about Christ or God. That's not anywhere in Scripture. The new creature, you, the one you're supposed to identify with, that one in heaven is going to want to do only good, which really, if we net it all out, means to worship God and sing His praises for all of eternity. And we're all very happy to do it. And we're not puppets. We want to do it. And if God says, hey, just for my fun, here, I'm watching, go do cartwheels down the road 
in heaven. And you'll go, amen, I'm doing it. And you'd never disobey. You would never want to disobey. You wouldn't have a flesh that says, but I'm going to look stupid. Right? The same way that the flesh gets in the way when you take on the Great Commission. Oh, I can't go evangelize my friend. I'm going to look stupid. Imagine if Jesus Christ said, I can't go to the cross. I'm going to be naked. I'm going to look stupid. Imagine if he said that. And you're worried about what? Looking a fool to some person that you're trying to give the gospel to? No. The new creature's like, let me at him. I love the gospel. Let me share this thing. The flesh is like, don't embarrass yourself. You're not going to have that in heaven. But it's actually you that wants to obey God. You, the new creature. Not your flesh. The new creature. So on the heaven note, consider the following questions. Will your new creature be any different in heaven than it is right now? No. It's as good as it gets. You've been changed. God didn't say, I'm going to change you perfectly minus, and then when you get to heaven, you're going to be perfect full. No. He says, I made you perfect. You've got a new creature. It's done. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that he's going to enhance the new creature somehow in heaven. So, will your new creature be any different in heaven than it is right now? The answer is emphatically no. Will God need, then, to be a puppeteer in heaven? No. Why? Because you're not going to have this thing. Considering Romans 7, speaking of this thing, I do the things I don't want to do, I don't do the things I want to do. It's not me, but the sin in me, my flesh, etc., etc., so says Paul, that battle that goes on. Do you believe that you are in Christ, in union with him? If yes, then ask yourself, do you believe that Jesus Christ himself is able to produce good fruit on his own? If yes, then why doubt that you can? Why doubt it? Are you not a partaker of grace? Philippians 1.7, John 1.14, 2 John 3. I'll give you the first two up here. Actually, the second two up here on the board. 1 John 1.14 And the Word became flesh, full of grace and truth. 2 John 3 Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. So if you believe that Jesus can do it, and He's full of grace, why can't your new creature who's full of grace, do something good and produce its own good fruit. We know it, does, it never does that in the absence of the Spirit. This we know from Scripture. But that's that supernatural realm that we can't describe. But so what? The Bible says you, your new creature, will produce good fruit. And that's a good thing. So we're not passive robots, in other words, and God's not a puppeteer. So I give, let me give you an analogy here. And I'm just going to apologize up front. Any analogy that tries to describe that supernatural realm is imperfect. It's going to fail. So I've already failed you, but listen anyways. Are you, aren't you excited? Everybody just went off to snooze for the next five minutes. So just pretend it's a really hot day and you're sweating as your family and friends gathered around you have been. And someone says, maybe God will grant us some comfort 
a little blessing. And there's a huge fan next to the group of you. So you take its plug and you insert it into your belly button. What happens? Nothing. <laughs> Except maybe you get some weird stares, right? <laughs> All right, suppose now, and if God said this, it would happen. Suppose God says, if you believe in my Son as Lord and Savior, I'm going to turn you into a solar panel, and I'm going to make your belly button an electric outlet. And you say, I believe you. Bam, it's done. You are now a solar panel with an electric outlet. You plug in the fan, and still nothing happens. Why not? Because the sun's not out. So God says, would you like to bear some good fruit for the benefit of others? And you say, yes, I would. And God says, I thought so. And at that moment, the sun comes out in full force. You, the solar panel, absorb the energy, and the fan begins spinning, cooling off you and your friends. Your friends turn to you and say, thank you so much for this blessing. And you turn to God and say, thank you, God, for turning me into a solar panel and then energizing me with light so that I could produce good fruit. This is loosely analogous to what happens to each of us at salvation. We are changed completely, able to become instruments of righteousness. It's God who changes us completely by grace. However, it's also God who energizes us, the way sun energizes solar panels to produce usable electricity. The Holy Spirit is like the sunlight in this analogy, producing his own good fruit, love, peace, patience, etc. But he couldn't do it if you weren't first changed. I hope you get the point. And frankly, again, that may be the best analogy I can ever give you on the topic of spiritual fruit-bearing being a work of a believer and a work of God simultaneously, supernaturally. It's the best I can do. And it's imperfect. And I warned you. But hopefully it helps. Since we all had some homework from Tuesday's lesson, let's review it in class now. Uh, everybody's like, what? There was no homework. I know there was homework, because I listened. The book of Ephesians. There wasn't any primary point of contention in view. Therefore, Paul was free to expand upon the glories of the gospel and the lives of believers. It's a magnificent treatise on what living the gospel looks like in a church that hasn't been overrun by the flesh. After reading Ephesians 2 and 3 entirely, we concluded this. In his confirmation of the gospel, a la Philippians 1.7, Paul refers to grace a lot in the book of Ephesians. This makes total sense, given the stewardship of God's grace was given him to teach. Grace is the linchpin of the gospel, hence it was frequently extolled and defended by Paul and others. So let's now see chapter 1 and how that dovetails into these same principles. Go to Ephesians 1.1. 1, 1. Most of you are like, ah, it's great. I just read that last night as part of my homework. This is going to be a blast. Yeah, I got two people looking at me, and they're both laughing. I don't know what that means. Scott, I don't think they did their homework. Ephesians 1.1 1, 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, 
to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was blessed with every spiritual or who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him, excuse me, we have redemption, excuse me, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He, how many times have we seen the word grace so far? Five? Or in verse seven? Which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. What do you see? You see grace, you see God's glory. You see grace, you see God's glory. Don't you see it? You see grace and you see God being glorified. It's like, boom, back and forth. It's like a tennis match. Grace, God glorified. Grace, God glorified. In just so many ways. And Paul's just rattling them off. And that's the beauty of Ephesians, right? He doesn't have any contention with these people. He's just saying, this is fantastic. This is magnificent. Let's talk about this a little bit more. So in him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, for the praise of his glory. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name, excuse me, that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. 
and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Not a bit of contention there. Just building up the, the body, the saints. Just saying, look, his grace is magnificent. And then, of course, in chapter 2, it's all about salvation and grace, is, uh, grace being used as the linchpin of our salvation even. It's magnificent. There's no roadblocks. There's no speed bumps to his discourse here. And it's magnificent. And that's how you should read it. And you should just read it that way. Just read it and say, this is fantastic. And don't stop. Learn to read. Hopefully, most of you are done through that book, I hope, How to Master the English Bible by now, hopefully. Um, that's exactly what he talks about. He goes, you've got to learn, you know, everything has a time and place. You want to do a little theology proper like I did with you earlier with uh, John 15 too? That's got its place. It's good. Helps iron things out. You know, if you've got any questions, this kind of a thing. But above all, you have to learn how to read the Bible and enjoy it. And just read it. It's magnificent. And just read it for enjoyment. And if you never think that way, start thinking that way. You're missing it. The thing we ought to embrace with the book of Ephesians as a whole is grace. That's what I see. I think of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, Ephesians, I think of grace. I think of just overwhelming grace. And because he's the giver of grace, all the things he just gave. I mean, we are sealed by the Spirit at the day of our salvation. Think about that. We're sealed. That's it. It's done. That's why we get, that's one of the arguments for eternal security, right? It's done. You can't break that seal because it's God's seal. It's not broke. It's not breakable. That's magnificent. And that brings glory to God. God says, if I save you, I'm saving you. There's nobody's going to snatch you out of my hands. So says Jesus even, right? It's not going to happen. So if I saved you, it brings glory to me because it was my grace. That's why you see grace, his glory, grace, his glory. He changed you by grace, brings glory to Him. He sanctifies you by grace, brings glory to Him. He sealed you, brings glory to Him. Everything He does by grace brings glory to Him. Unless you say, oh, that's so nice of you, God. Give me that. This is my grace. And somehow your flesh gets involved. It's amazing how simple grace is once the flesh is out of the way. As I was thinking about grace this past week, I was thinking about how the flesh likes to... The only word I could come up with is snatch. Grace, the flesh likes to snatch away those times in our lives where all we can do is marvel at His grace. And the flesh reminds me of... Does anybody know what a trapdoor spider is? No one's ever seen one? Joey? Yeah. This is what they look like, not to creep you out. But that's the, that's the, where is it, can you see that? That's the trap door right there. There's the spider and there's his prey. It looks just like, a, it, it, you can't tell until he comes popping out. He can fear the, you know, he hears the pitter-patter of the insect. He flips open his little trap door, grabs the insect, and drops back down the trap door closes. It's called a trap door spider. That's all I can think about with the flesh. Here comes grace, and the, and the flesh just goes. You know what I'm saying? And like grabs it. And it's like snatches it for itself and says, Whoa, I can do something with that. God just gave me so God just gave me intelligence. I was born with intelligence. Oh, well, 
I worked hard for this intelligence. I got like a triple PhD and I was like summa cum laude, you know. It's <laughs> not even how you say it. Anyways. To me, that's what the flesh is like. It's like a trapdoor spider. It grabs, anytime grace comes across the horizon, beautiful thing, gift of God, brings glory to God, what do we do? We grab it for ourselves. Worst case, flesh says, I'll save and sanctify myself. Well, then, my friend, you're an unbeliever because you just bounced off of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. But we can also try to take credit for things after we're saved, which frustrates our own sanctification, which is what the Spirit's been saying. The flesh specializes in taking credit for God's good work, even though Scripture says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. It snatches away the blessings that go along with living a grace-oriented life before we can truly enjoy them. We might get a blessing from God, and our stupid flesh somehow mangles it, snatches it away. And instead of it being something pure and beautiful as a gift from God, somehow our flesh gets involved and we mangle it. And it's basically perverted, and once it's perverted, it's no longer pure, and then it's gone. Grace is so simple, yet we allow the flesh to rob us of it, often by overcomplicating it. Why would we overcomplicate something so simple? Because grace is offensive to the flesh, of course. Of course, because there's no stratification, there's no creature credit in grace. And since there's no creature credit, you can't be better than the next person. Grace offends the flesh. It's, if it's by God's grace, then it is simple. Salvation is simple, as is sanctification. Man is responsible for complicating things. That's why the flesh snatches away grace blessings and mangles them and perverts them. Because it's offended by it doesn't like it. It just complicates things. It confuses things. But as Scripture tells us, if that's our current state, 1 Corinthians 14.33, For God is not a God of confusion, which is instability, confusion, disorder, tumult, disturbances, but of peace, which is welfare, peace, without disturbances, as, is, as in all the churches of the saints. God is not a God of confusion. But yet, the flesh makes things complicated. And because it makes things complicated, it, make, it confuses things. You can't, you can't read your Bible for enjoyment when your flesh is involved. When your flesh doesn't just say, I'm just going to accept what's in the Bible and that's that. You can't read it for enjoyment because a religious person will read the Bible and stop literally at every single command and make a mental note about how they're going to actually do that command the next day and plan out their next five-year plan about how they're going to be the most greatest Christian that ever lived by, I got all these commands memorized, I've been through all the books, you know, I got all these commands. No, how about, how about love? Oh, what now? No, I got the definitions down. I know the definitions. I'll love you. I'll show you my love by doing this and doing that. 
but God sees the heart. And so every other fruit of the Spirit, minus love, is wood, hand, straw. (laughs) If your motivation is wrong, what does the Bible say about any fruit that you might bear? Wood, hay, and straw. So you can't, as I said, I think a couple of Sundays ago, stop trying to be someone you're not, first of all, because that's the flesh getting involved. But I want to be better, so I'm going to try to be, be something I'm not. So, so just stop being, trying to be someone you're not. Let's just face it. Has anybody arrived in here yet? No, seriously. Does anybody think they've arrived? Does anybody think they have it all down pat? Does everybody think they got the Bible completely mastered in here? None of us do. None of us are even close. The more I read the Bible, the more ridiculous. I feel like an idiot. I'm not kidding you. I feel like a complete idiot. Not because it's difficult at all. Because it's that simple. And I've got years of overcomplicating it that I've got to sift through now. Like an idiot. It's my own fault for being a jackass. Because my flesh snatched away. Snatched away the simple things and overcomplicated things. Overcomplicated things. And it's just like I'm backing out of this big old nest of confusion that didn't need to be there, of doctrines that I need to throw out in the garbage. It's horrible. But that's how sinister Satan is. He gets us before we're even looking. Anyways, we have had some recent conversations on the idea of spiritual maturity, Striving for so-called spiritual maturity. If one's pursuit of so-called spiritual maturity is the cause for anxiety, angst, increasing confusion, etc., it is fair to say that it is ungodly by nature. Fruit of the wrong nature, a.k.a. the old sin nature. As a friendly reminder, the Bible says in Isaiah 55, 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. So what he's saying basically to this congregation, for I believe a multitude of reasons, is that you have to look at what you actually think, even historically, spiritual maturity is. It may not be what you think it is. I'd argue it probably isn't. So again, what the Spirit's been cautioning you of as of late is not necessarily the usage of the phrase spiritual maturity, but rather how you define it. How do you define it? To assist us in this process, the Spirit gave us a few visual aids on the topic in Scripture. Maturity in Jesus' mind was opposite from his disciples' mind. We saw that. Who's the greatest? He's like, seriously, guys? Who's the greatest? Twice in Luke that we saw. There are multiple examples of Jesus having to readjust his disciples. Mark 10, 13, 16, Luke 9, 46 to 48, 22, 24 to 30, etc. And we ended twice already with this principle on maturity. The most mature people in any church are the greatest servants. That's scriptural, Mark 10, 45. So we have to look at our own heart and your desire to serve others rather than self. And even consider your deeds. Luke 21, 1-4, 2 Corinthians 8, 12. Most of you know the widow's might account, which is Luke 21, 1-4. So let's consider the other one. I want to share something with you. Go to 2 Corinthians 8, 12. 2 Corinthians 8, 12. Again, the principle on the board. Look at your own heart. 
That's not anybody's business. So don't look around and say, oh, so-and-so never serves in the church. They're like infants. Don't be foolish. Seriously, the fact that you're even thinking that way says something. 2 Corinthians 8.12 For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. All right, so there's a question for you. There's a good thing to sort of drag out the flesh, if it's there, on this topic of servanthood, on this topic of giving. Right? What's the greater love? What's the greatest love? To lay down your life for others. That's equivalent to saying, I'm going to give, up, I'm going to give my life to Jesus. Right? In servanthood to Him. That's the great gift. So we have giving in view. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So just as a side note, <clears throat> this idea of readiness, it's a very slippery word. Um, it includes making oneself ready to serve others. So readiness here includes making oneself ready to serve others, which means that if your lifestyle, for back, lack of a better term, if your lifestyle precludes you from having something to give in the first place, and said lifestyle is filled with your wants being satisfied rather than your actual needs, so bear with me, if your lifestyle precludes you from having in the first place, and your lifestyle is filled with your wants being satisfied rather than just your actual needs, and this so-called you're not able or you're not ready, uh, your readiness, so to speak, is affected, then you, my friend, fall into another category of people called immature people. If you have nothing to give, because you've given in to all of your own wants, not needs, wants, then your readiness isn't pure. Some people say, you know, I was ready to give. I'm so ready to give, but I got nothing to give. Yeah, that's because all you do is spend everything on yourself. I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about your time, your energy, and your finances. But all you think about is your own wants. So by the time... The need actually arises to lay down your life for somebody else. You got nothing left in the basket. You got nothing left in the, in the, you got no more gas left in the engine, right? Well, that's not proper readiness. That's an immature person who's making excuses for living exclusively for themselves. And in that case, their readiness isn't pure. And I actually wrote a blog on this titled, I'd love to help, but dot, 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 if you remember. And one of the key principles in that blog was charity has been stymied by irresponsibility. You know? And this is, come on, you don't have to be rocket scientists, right? A mature person says, you know, there may not be a need in the church right now. So-and-so might not have a need, or the church itself might not have a need. Um, But I'm going to, you know, I'm going to have a little something ready just in case. Because God gave me some blessing over here. I'm going to not kill myself exceedingly so, so I can never go to class and take advantage of this building being open and 
take advantage of the opportunity to encourage other people because I'm too damn tired all the time because I'm working. Guess what? I'm working for the man. Why? Because I got to pay for my mortgage. My mortgage is ridiculous. Why do you get such a big mortgage? Because I needed a big house. You really needed a big house? You even needed a little house? You sure that's a need? Because people in the old, the old days used to live in caves. I'm just saying. Just saying. You, you sure that's a legitimate need that you have? No, that's what you want. You want that stuff. I'm not picking on you. I'm just saying, let's just call a spade a spade. If we're going to read the Bible with the faith of a child, let's be honest. If you're not ready because you're immature, then let's just say you're not ready because you're immature. Let's not propose that we're mature, but then when push comes to shove, don't just be a hearer, be a doer, and you're incapable of doing ever. Let's just call a spade a spade, and then we can start from there. Is that fair? I don't think that's rocket science, right? But, you know, again, that's just a little side note that sort of came up on that topic, and here we are again, finishing on that topic. Three lessons now. Finishing on this one topic. Again, look at verse 8, 12 in 2 Corinthians. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. There's a maturity principle in there. I just taught it to you. If the readiness is present and it is acceptable, it is acceptable according to what a person has. Well, what's your definition of readiness? I just taught you that. The immature person says, I got nothing. I'm ready, but I got nothing. Over and over and over again. That's a good proof point. That means you're not living for others. You're living for yourself. Okay, back to our mainstream point again. This is the one we keep finishing on, and I guess I'm going to finish this way. The most mature people in any church are the greatest servants. Look at your own heart and your desire to serve others rather than yourself and consider your deeds even. I mean, the Bible's not shy about deeds. That's another thing I'm learning. You know, so many people are like, oh, but my heart is in it. You know, my heart's in it. Yeah, but you never do anything. <laughs> but my heart is in it. I'm convicted. But you've never done anything. I'm just saying. Doesn't it at some point the Bible say that if your heart is in it, you'll do something? Guess so. Then why haven't you done anything? You know what I'm saying? Enough. Sometimes you just got to say, all right, there's a certain practicality to the spiritual life too. You know what I'm saying? If everybody's a bleeding heart, nothing ever gets done. It's got to be like bloody knuckles too, you know, from working. <gasps> Anyways, you get the point? All right, not to end on a sour note trying to make it a little funny there. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.